I'd like to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles gloriously so to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. In D.A. Carson's very helpful book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers, under the chapter heading, Praying for Others, he insightfully writes the following. Some of us think that the church, by and large, is quite a nice place. There is fellowship, friendship, sometimes a reasonable safe haven from the pressures of tense relationships at work or elsewhere. In the best of circumstances, there may be some sensitivity to aesthetics, perhaps even a quality pipe organ. Yes, it is quite a nice place, the church, were it not for one thing. Many of the people who belong are simply unbearable. If only we could enjoy church without people. Revel in corporate worship without people. Of course, we're not thinking of all the people. Some of them are all right, but it sure would be a much more wonderful place if significant numbers of them would immediately find themselves transferred to Pago Pago or Cutter. Of course, he wrote that years ago before people were actually transferred to Cutter. Soon as we have articulated our resentments so ludicrously, he writes, we are forced into a sickly grin that acknowledges our self-righteousness. The celebrated line from the old Pogo comic strip says it all. We have met the enemy, and he is us. For the fact of the matter is that the church is people. People of whom I am a part. The church is not a building, still less a kingdom or a bishop. The church is people. Moreover, all of us are fallen people. Forgiven, yes, and in the process of sanctification, but still a long way off from the perfection that will characterize the new heaven and the new earth. The church, in short, is us. When we live up to our calling, we remember that in God's church, people do not set the agenda, they are the agenda. Our allegiance to God and His gospel will be demonstrated in our service to His people, to those who will become His people, to those made in His image. It is in this sense that Christians must be constantly asking what is best for the people of God. Our allegiance to Jesus Christ, our confession of Him as Lord, entails a profound commitment to further His interests. And it does not take much reading of Scripture to perceive that His interests are tied to the well-being of His people. And a little while later, he says this, One of the remarkable characteristics of Paul's prayers is the large proportion of space devoted to praying for others. Of course, one can find Paul offering simple praise to God and imagine Paul praying for himself. But Paul's prayers 
are outstanding for the large part intercession for others and thanksgiving for others play in them. If we follow Paul's example, then we will never overlook the monumental importance of praying for others. If we learn to pray with Paul, we will learn to pray for others. We will see it is part of our job to approach God with thanksgiving for others and with intercession for others. In short, our praying will be shaped by our profound desire to seek what is best for the people of God. End quote. Like Carson, I too find most remarkable about the Apostle Paul are his profound prayers as listed in Holy Scripture. Sometimes the prayers themselves are just that, listed. And sometimes it is simply Paul's mentioning that he's been continually praying for his people. Whatever the context, however, Paul's pastoral heart and life comes shining through his prayers for his people. Notice what he says, for instance, to those whom he desires to minister in one of those prayers in Romans 1, 8 to 15. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Two major themes leap off the page from these verses. One, thanksgiving, verse 8. And two, intercessory prayer, verses 9 to 15. And that could serve as our two-part outline this morning. The thanksgiving and intercessory prayer life of Paul and its implications for our lives. Or you could say that prayer itself has two aspects in this passage. Thanksgiving and intercession. 
however you desire to look at it, Paul's heart and life for the Roman believers, and really that's our title, Paul's pastoral heart and life for the Roman believers, a people, by the way, he has not yet largely met, although he's met some of them, but so desperately wants to, is written all over this text. Let's take the first part of this, thankfulness. And you're going to hear a lot about that this morning. Thankfulness. And see if we can unpack it for you. Look at verse 8. This is what it says. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. One of the reasons the Apostle Paul is so thankful for these Roman believers is their fruitfulness. Notice the link between verse 8, your faith is proclaimed in all the world, and what the Apostle Paul has written previously in verse 5, what we covered last time. Their obedience of faith for the sake of His name has gone out among all the nations. You remember I said to you that Paul's heart is a missionary heart. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, remember? And it's his desire to use Rome as an eventual launching pad to Spain. And he's already said in verse 5 that the aim of his life and the lives of these Romans is the obedience of faith so that that obedient faith is for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, and that name, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ the Lord, would go out and be spread among all the nations. And now, according to verse 8, he's hearing reports of that very thing. And that is so encouraging to him. He says, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. And I don't think he's using hyperbole here. I don't think he's talking in a rhetorical flourish. I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying that in the inhabited world, at least maybe in the church world, in the world of his ministry, in the world of the reporting of their faith, it has gone out. The present tense declaration. Your faith is presently being declared in all the world. In fact, look at the end of Romans. Romans 16, 19. He says the same thing. Romans 16, 19. The first part of it. He says, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Boy, what an incredible affirmation of these Roman believers. And notice what he also says in verse 8 of chapter 1. He also says that he thanks God, and this is important, through Jesus Christ. Why does he say it that way? Because it is through the access that we have all gained Through the cross of Jesus Christ and His work of justification on our behalf that Paul can even give thanks in the first place. 
This is not a throwaway phrase. This is very, very delicate and very, very deliberate. I thank my God through the justification that we have all received through the cross of Jesus Christ and His justification on our behalf. That is why when we pray, we pray to God through the Son, gaining access through His agency in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a very careful kind of praying that Paul gives. That's why when we pray, as does Paul, we pray to God through Christ. Through the agency of Christ. In and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. He's given us access. This thankfulness on the part of Paul is a monumental aspect of his prayer life. He's just a thankful man. And I'd like to ask you this question this morning. Is it a monumental aspect of your prayer life? Are you thankful? Are you a thankful person? Do you thank God? You say, oh yes, I thank God every day of my life. I thank Him for my health. I thank Him for my job. I thank Him for my house, the roof over my head. I thank Him for my financial stability. I thank Him for my etc., my etc., my etc. Well, that's good. But let me ask you, in the context of that which Paul is thanking God for, do you thank Him for other people? You say, oh yes, I do. I thank Him for my immediate family. And that's, of course, very important. But that's easy. That's easy to thank God for your immediate family. You see them every day. You love them. They're a part of your flesh. They're your blood. But Paul is not thanking these folks because they're a part of his immediate family. Don't forget, he has not met most of them. He's met some of them, but he's not met most of them. And yet he says here, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Yet he's not met most of them. He was not the founder of this church. And yet he's thanking God for them. This is incredible. Why does he do this? What what is inside of this man that makes him just generally a thankful person? Well, number one, it's because he knows what he's been delivered from generally. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, and ultimately even the presence of sin. He's just generally a thankful person. He knows that he can thank God because through the redemption that he's found in Jesus Christ, he is a thankful man. He is generally a thankful person. He thanks God every day for the redemption that he's found in Jesus Christ. And he can thank God for all who he has been given to. For these Gentile believers. 
Even the ones that He has yet to find, to meet. He knows that God may yet give Him the privilege of meeting these folks. And His heart is open wide to them. He wants to come to them. He wants to to bear spiritual fruit among them. He's heard about their faith. It's, it's being proclaimed in all the world and he's giddy, wants to come to them. He's heard about their faith. And he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I can't wait to come to you. Is that how you are? Is that the kind of thankful heart you are about the spread of the gospel message? About the worldwide evangelization of the lost? You read a book about worldwide evangelization? About what God may be doing in the world? And do you become absolutely privileged at the opportunity of praying for that kind of worldwide evangelization and your part in it, even if it's only prayer? That's Paul, that's his heart. He's just a thankful man. In fact, go on a journey with me. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is, this is Paul's pastoral heart and life. Look at Ephesians 1.15. This is his prayer life, folks. This is his thankful prayer life. Ephesians 1.15. For this reason, he says, because I have heard of your faith, the faith of the Ephesians, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's a thankful man. Ephesians 1.15. Look at Philippians 1.3. Philippians 1.3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You say, well, he's just saying that. No, remember, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He can't be lying. If he were lying, the Holy Spirit would catch him up short, right? He'd be immediately saying, Paul, you can't write that. You're lying. Right? All of this is true. It's 100% accurate. He is absolutely telling the truth. In fact, he even says that in Scripture on occasion, right? I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Yes, thanksgiving is a part of this man's life. Colossians 1.3 We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Chapter 4, he says, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, Colossian believers, being watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. He is a thankful man. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, for as, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, he says, that we may seek you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, etc. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Philemon 4. Philemon 4, I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ, for I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul is a thankful man. Is this indicative of your prayer life? Are you thankful? Well, after a list like that, mine has surely a long way to go in the thankfulness category. You know, it's hard to be critical and judgmental and harsh when you're praying prayers of thankfulness, isn't it? Especially when you're praying like this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for so-and-so. Boy, isn't it hard to be harsh when you're saying a prayer like that? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for so-and-so. Wouldn't it be hard to be critical of someone when you pray your prayer like that through the agency of Jesus Christ? I pray to God through Jesus Christ for Susie because well Lord she talks too much and her hair is out of style and I just don't like her attitude that'd be a hard prayer to pray wouldn't it that would not be going together in fact that would be blasphemous wouldn't it 
And on the other hand, you wouldn't want to criticize Susie in that way because she's made in the image of God. Now, it may be that Susie needs some things that she has to work on. And there are appropriate ways to approach her. But it appears to me that all of those passages that we went through, like Paul, he did work on some things with those believers. But it seems also that he was constantly thanking God for them. Constantly thanking God for the believers that he was working with. And that's the point of his prayers for them. And it had a transforming effect upon his attitude toward them. And I think I know why. Remember Stephen? Doubtless Saul, Paul, never forgot his role in the stoning of Stephen. You remember he stood by with the cloaks, the coats. No doubt he was humbled. No doubt he realized the sin for which he was involved. No doubt it was a constant reminder of him. No doubt that's what motivated him to say things like, A sinner for which I am chief. No doubt that was a sin for which he was reminded of. And he would say, Oh, I thank you through Jesus Christ. And I'm sure the illustration of my fictitious Susie is analogous to Paul's real relationship with people like the Corinthians, right? Could there be any greater opportunity with a group of people like that for Paul to say, what a lousy bunch this is. What am I going to do with them? With all the Apostle Paul had in dealing with them, personality cults, lawsuits with one another, a prominent man in the church who was having sexual relations with his father's wife, marriage and divorce issues, singleness issues, widow issues, financial financial issues, spiritual gift issues, worship wars, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, people overeating before coming to the communal love feast, women not keeping silent in the worship services, leaders in the church questioning Paul's apostolic credentials, saying he was in the ministry for money or for sexual favors, and a whole host of other issues, all in one church. All in one church. And all of that in one church, and the Apostle Paul still says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. Listen to it. I give thanks to my God Always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, how do those two things match up? I thank God always for you. And yet he was dealing with the Corinthian church as he did. How can the two things be both true at the same time? Apparently they were. You say they they can't be true. How could he be dealing with all that stuff in the Corinthian church and say at the same time, I thank God always 
for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You can't be working with a church of that nature and say, I thank God for you always. Yes, you can. Why? Because God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. God can work with a church with all of their problems and issues and foibles and faults and failures. And you can still thank God because God knows what He's doing. And God's working His work of grace. No, no matter where somebody is along the spiritual plane, along the path of their sanctification. Listen, folks. Thankfulness was a distinguishing mark in His prayers for people, and it ought to be a distinguishing mark in our prayers for our people. Tonight in our care groups, I'm asking that you write out 50 things that you're thankful for. Say, 50? You could write out 150, just like that. If you really set your mind to it, you could begin to realize all the things with which God has blessed you, and then you could turn around and you could begin, even tonight, to articulate all of the things that you are thankful for the people around you. You could do that. You could do that just with the people in your care group. And you could begin maybe even in our church as a whole. And our church could be transformed as a result of being a more thankful person. It's true. Churches, whole churches have been transformed as a result of this one thing being more thankful. Thankfulness. That's what Paul was. I thank my God. There's a second thing in this text. Intercessory prayer. Look at verse 9 and 10. He introduces the concept of intercession for the believers in Rome. And he does it in a most unique way. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. It's incredible. Paul, first of all, is speaking here of intercession. Intercession. And in his intercessory prayer, as he unfolds and unpacks this intercessory prayer, he goes on to say in the latter part of this text, through his intercessory prayer life, there are three things that I want to do when I come. And he really unfolds the very purpose of wanting to come to Rome. He says, I want to do three things. He says in verse 11, at the latter part, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you, to strengthen you. That's a part of his intercessory heart and life. Secondly, according to verse 13, I want to reap a spiritual harvest among you and the rest of the Gentiles. And thirdly, part of his intercessory prayer, he says, I want to preach the gospel also to you Romans, verse 15. So really, as a part of his prayer, he expresses his intention. And it's really three parallel ideas. To impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Secondly, to reap a spiritual harvest among the Gentiles. 
And thirdly, to preach the gospel among the Romans. So really, thankfulness is the key idea in verse 8. And then in verses 9 to 15, wrapping around his intercessory prayer obligation is his threefold intention. To impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. To reap a spiritual harvest among the Gentiles. And thirdly, to preach the gospel to these Romans. Now I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10 that he uses three witnesses, as it were, to validate his intercessory prayer life. Notice what he says. He speaks here of his intercessory prayer life and he stacks three impressive witnesses that validates his prayer life. First of all, he says, for God is my witness. That's his first intercessory prayer validator. He says, God the Father is my witness. And if you want to have somebody who witnesses or validates your prayer life, that's probably a pretty good person to say, yes, I agree that that's what he's doing. God the Father. God is my witness. You want to have God the Father on the witness stand for you on your behalf? God is my witness. And the second, he says, whom I serve with my spirit. And what he's really saying there is that his own ministry service is a service with his wholehearted being. Whom I serve with my spirit. It's not some mystical idea. He's simply saying, I do this with my whole heart. That's what I think he means there. And then thirdly, he says... Without ceasing, I mention you always, which is another way of saying, I regularly and habitually pray for you. That's what he's saying. And that's three validations to his intercessory prayer life. He's longing to show these dear people how much he loves them and how much he wants to minister to them. He prays for them. And as I said, he wasn't even their spiritual father. It's an amazing thing. He did not establish their church. He was not the one nurturing them along in the faith. And yet he desperately wants to see them. And he desperately wants to encourage them in the faith. And so he intercedes for them with prayers that are without ceasing. As God the Father is his witness. Whom he is serving with his whole hearted being. As we might say in our vernacular, Paul, you're the man. You, you are the man. What a model. Look at the latter part of verse 10. He says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you for I long to see you. Is there pathos here, folks? Is there pathos in this man's voice? This is really where we come to the purpose of the letter at least his intentions. He's desiring to come to them. And here's the first of those three. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. And boy, is there humility all over this. Because here's the apostle. I mean, these are run-of-the-mill Roman believers. And here's the apostolic Paul. And he says, I just want to be mutually encouraged by your faith. Come on. I mean, what do these folks need 
to do in adding to Paul's faith. I mean, they have a lot for Paul to add to their faith, but their faith adding to Paul's? Well, he's humbly saying it. That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine, yes. By the way, Paul did finally go to Rome. But how? As a prisoner. He has to submit his will to the will of God. He doesn't know what God's will is. And he does come to Rome, but he did come to Rome as a prisoner in chains. But here he says to the Romans, I'm longing to impart a spiritual gift. And whatever that gift is, it's a strengthening gift. And I assume that what he means is explained by his own clarification here. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I think it's the imparting of the gift of faith. The mutually edifying gift of faith. And I think what he's saying is that it's a harvest of souls. A preaching of the gospel. A winning to Christ of people. And it may not simply be someone's initial faith in Christ, but how they're getting along and their continuing faith in Christ. And ever-expanding, ever-widening, ever-growing faith in Christ. He says, I long to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. And as a result, maybe even I'll be strengthened in my faith. And you know, that's what happens. After I am away from certain people that I love and appreciate, maybe even going to a shepherd's conference, having not seen people for years, I go there and I talk with them and I've seen how they've matured and grown in their faith, and I am so encouraged. I'm so buoyed in my spirit. I'm so edified. I'm so built up because I've seen how they've grown, how they've matured. So encouraging. How's your faith in Christ? Is it ever expanding, ever widening, ever growing? Are others mutually encouraged by your faith? Are they strengthened by you? Are you able to impart, as it were, the capacity to strengthen others with, a, with your spiritual giftedness? Maybe not in an apostolic sense here like Paul, but in the sense of your encouraging and mutually edifying words to them? That's, that's what's going on here. That's what he wants to do. And he even gives a second little category why he wants to see them. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's talking about a harvest here, which of course means fruit. He's talking about human fruit. Evangelization fruit, we might say. Soul fruit. Essentially winning converts to Christianity. He's reaffirming his apostolic call. That's what he means when he says that he wants to reap some harvest among the Romans as well as among the Gentiles. He's reaffirming, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That's what I'm all about. That's what I've been called to do. 
You see that phrase there, I am under obligation? He's a debtor to God. He says, both to the Greeks, that's the educated, and to the uneducated, that's the barbarians. Do you see that word there, barbarians? That's one of those words that's an antimonopia word, antimonopaic word. That's a word that sounds like what it means. That's a, a guttural sound that the Greeks heard centuries earlier from the foreigners, sounding to them like bar, bar, bar. Barbarians. That's what they called the uncouth people that they found. And the word came to mean someone who was uncouth, uncultured, uneducated. And Paul says, but that's who I'm called to reach. I'm obligated both to the educated and the uneducated, to the Greeks and to the bar, 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 the barbarians. That's who I'm called to reach. To you Romans and to the other Gentiles as well. Look, I'm, I'm here not just for the Romans, but all the way to Spain if necessary. All the way to the far reaches. All the way to the west. I want to reap a harvest of ripe spiritual fruit for the glory of God. That's his point. That's your heart. That's your heart. That's what you're all about? Is that what you want to do? As you sit there today, is that your desire? Do you want to go to the unreached? The uneducated? The bar, bar, bar? Barbarians? They're out there. Or maybe let's start small. How about your neighbor across the street? It's a good start. You see your obligation? Don't forget Romans 1.5. To bring the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Paul says, I am under obligation. Or he says it in this way in Romans or in 1 Corinthians 9:16 Necessity is laid upon me woe is me if I do not preach the gospel Woe is me damn me consign me to judgment condemn me if I do not preach the gospel It is of necessity if I do not preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says what he says in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel. To you also who are in Rome. I'm eager. There are really two ways you can interpret this verse. One way is to see Paul addressing his eagerness to preach the gospel to Gentiles in Rome in general. To you also who are in Rome. That would allow him to speak evangelistically about the gospel message 
being preached in Rome, the city, rather than those believers in the church at Rome who were already redeemed. Or, remember, as I've told you previously, there's another way of looking at this. It may not just just be an initial preaching of an evangelistic message that Paul is referencing when he addresses these Christians. Because someone might say, well, why is he eager to preach the gospel to you Christians at Rome? They've already received the gospel. He could be referring to their continued gospel upbuilding. Although certainly the primary usage of euangelizo is to preach the gospel to unbelievers. But don't forget Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our whole lives are to speak of the euangelion, the gospel. Not just when we first believed, but all of our lives are to speak of the worthiness of the gospel of Christ. But really, either way you take it, Paul says, I'm eager to preach, whether it's to the city of Rome, or to continue to upbuild the believers in the church at Rome. And it all comes out of his, of his intercessory prayer life. I'm eager to preach to the unbelievers in the city of Rome, or I want to preach the gospel to the Christians for their continued upbuilding in the church of Rome. Whatever that means, it means this, that Paul is giving his life and his prayers of intercession and his thankfulness to God for these people. And he needs our help. And whether it's in Rome right now, which desperately needs our help. When I was there last week at the Grace Church Shepherds Conference, I listened to Dr. R.C. Sproul speak at the Master's Seminary Alumni Banquet. And he spoke of having seen Rome in just a few short time spans back, I don't know if it was weeks or months back, but in the very place where Martin Luther climbed up in Rome, the very steps, the steps of penance, where he was attempting to gain favor with God on his knees, literally, He saw those very same steps, did R.C. Sproul, where the very same Roman Catholics of today are attempting to do the very same things that Martin Luther did of yesteryear, climbing on those very same steps, attempting to do the very same thing in penance, gaining favor with God so as to be saved. They need our help. Because you can't gain favor with God by flagellation. By climbing physically up a flight of stairs to show God your worthiness. So that by your works and His grace, you would be saved. They need the pure, unadulterated saving gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. 
by His grace alone. They need that message. In Rome, as everywhere else in the world. And that's why Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And he says, and I love these verbs, I thank, verse 11, I long, verse 15, I am eager, and we'll get it to, get to it next Lord's Day, verse 16, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. If you're not ashamed, you'll preach this message also. Wherever the Lord sends you, let's pray together. Father, may we take this message boldly so that for the sake of His name, it will be proclaimed by us to all the world. I pray, Father, that this message which is our message, our gospel, would be proclaimed by us to all the world. May it be so, Lord. May we ourselves be those like Paul of whom we could say, I thank, I long, I am eager I am not ashamed. Take us, Lord, and use us for Your glory and the propagation of Your truth. For Jesus' sake and through Him to the glory of His name. Amen.